You can open up to Mark 15 this morning if you have your Bibles with you. Uh, We've been in this series looking at Jesus' last words on the cross, and that's where we're going to continue this morning uh, in our fourth week in the series. I think uh, as humans, we are captivated by rescue stories. There's something about rescue stories that we love to listen to them, tell them, or, or watch them, which is why I think some of maybe our favorite or most famous movies surround some sort of rescue story. Whether it's Rambo taking on the entire world to save some group of helpless people, uh, or it's the British Navy and people uh, coming and, and pulling off this impossible rescue out of Dunkirk, or it's a father going to uh, drastic and unrealistic lengths to save his daughter in Taken, or just a group of toys trying to rescue their lost friend Woody in Toy Story 2. So many of the movies we watch and love are woven around some rescue story because we're captivated. Our imaginations, I think, are captivated by rescue stories. This was the case in 2018 when the world was transfixed as a group, a Thailand soccer team, youth soccer team, got lost in a cave in Thailand and were trapped by waters that were rising up and threatening to drown them. Uh, The world watched and waited as divers tried to find them, which turned out to be the easiest part. And then the world watched and waited as they tried to figure out, how do we get these boys out through the water and the one, two, three kilometers that we need to go to get them each out of this cave? This was a a story that was actually recently told again in a documentary called The Rescue that I think does an excellent job of pointing out just how far people were willing to go to rescue these boys, just how much they were willing to do to get these uh, 12 boys and their coach out of this cave. One one of the divers in that documentary put it this way. He says, if you don't dive, everyone will die. So they dive into the depths of this submerged cave, into the darkness, into the abyss, and bring these boys out one by one. And you can watch and see the height of their concern for these boys based on the depths they are willing to go to pull them out. I think the reason we're so captivated by rescue stories is because we were made for a rescue story. And that the greatest rescue story there is, is the gospel. That no one went into farther depths to rescue people than God himself went when he died for us on the cross. And and what we might see this morning as we look again at another saying of Jesus as he hangs on the cross, is that we might see the heights of Jesus' love for us as we see the depths he was willing to suffer in order to save us. The the first three sayings on the cross, Father, forgive them. Today you will be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son. 
all give us a window into Jesus' care for people around him at the cross. And now this fourth saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Gives us a window into the depth of what Christ suffered for us on the cross. His fourth cry is meant to help us see how great the sacrifice is. How difficult the work was. How horrid and painful the suffering was. And as Charles Spurgeon puts it, you shall measure the height of his love if it ever be measured by the depth of his grief if that can ever be known. The pain that Jesus Jesus experienced up till this moment on the cross that we're going to look at today is but a finger prick compared to what he experiences in this passage. The the thorns that dug into his head, the the punches he absorbed, were like a stubbed toe compared with this. The, The whips that tore open his back were like a jammed finger compared to this. The, the nails that went through his arms and ankles were, were like just a twisted ankle compared to this. And, and the pain, that, the nerve pain that shot up his body every time he lifted himself up to get another breath was like a splinter compared to this. Not because those things aren't all as awful as we might imagine, but because what he is about to face for us is far worse than we can even grasp or imagine, but we're going to try to grasp some of it today because it's as we see the depths he descended to for us that we then might marvel again at how amazing he is and his love for us. And so let's pick up in Mark 15, 33, and we'll read up through verse 39. And when the sixth hour had come, There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. Father, we come to you this morning. And as we try to look into the depths of what Jesus suffered for us on the cross, we want to see both what he faced and what it means for us when we trust in him. We want to see the 
pain he went through, but we want to see the joy that he purchased us in going through that pain. And so God, would you help us to see this morning? Would you help us to grasp at what is in some ways mysterious? Would you help us to have our hearts opened to see and feel what happened on the cross and what it means for us that we might worship you? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' darkest hour is our greatest comfort. We might say, first of all, from this passage. Jesus' darkest hour, darkest three hours, is our greatest comfort. Mark tells us that Jesus was crucified at the third hour, which would have been nine o'clock according to the Jewish time frame for the day. And then Mark tells us from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, or from noon until 3 p.m., there was darkness over the face of this land. A supernatural darkness that God is using as a sign to help us see what is Jesus facing on the cross in these moments. Why this darkness for three hours? Well, darkness in the Bible is often associated with God's judgment and wrath on sin. That's why we can look at a verse like Exodus 10.21, where God tells Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. That God brings darkness on Egypt to demonstrate his judgment against them for holding the Israelites captive. And then we can read in the prophets as they look out to a future day of the Lord where God's going to judge sin and show his wrath on sin. And, And here's what some of them say. Amos says, and on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Or Joel says in Joel 1, 10 through 11, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So when we see God bringing darkness at noon, we should immediately think his judgment for sin is coming. His wrath is about to be poured out. And if you've been tracking with the story of the crucifixion so far, you might think, oh, those soldiers who just put him to the cross, they don't know what they're about to face. They're going to get it. Or you might think those Jewish rulers who condemned this innocent man and then mocked him, they better watch out because God is coming for them. So it should shock us when at the end of those three hours, we hear Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we recognize the judgment for sin and God's wrath for it is actually coming down on Jesus in those three hours on the cross. Jesus suffered the darkness of God's wrath. Now this can so easily be twisted, and we need to be careful about not twisting it. 
It can so easily be twisted to think that God is just this mean, cruel father who inflicted wrath on his innocent son. Or, or that Jesus had to somehow win God's love, that God was not loving this old, mean father, and Jesus had to appease him in order to win his love. Because both of those are false. The, the father and son both acted in love at the cross. And Jesus willingly stepped in and took the judgment for sin at the cross. And so it's not some mean, cruel father putting his innocent son to death. It's both of them acting in love for sinful people. But we have to see that what made the cross necessary is for God to judge our sin. And what made the cross possible is that the Father and the Son both chose in love to instead inflict that judgment on the Son, Jesus. I mean, as we sung last week, upon the cross of sorrow, the cup of wrath ran dry, the dying Savior drinking every drop. How powerful are those words? Every single drop. That the judgment for every sin of all people throughout all history who would trust in Jesus is being poured out on Jesus in these three hours. What a horrible, awful, dark three hours they must have been for him as he hangs on the cross. I mean, we can only imagine what this must have been like. In 1889, one of the worst natural disasters in the United States history happened. A flood that was 14 miles upstream from Johnstown, PA, or sorry, a dam that was 14 miles upstream uh, called the South Fork Dam, a dam that people worried would break for years as the waters got higher and higher, finally broke after an incredible rainstorm. And all this water went rushing down the valleys, destroying towns, bringing awful wreckage, and finally uh, taking over Johnstown just an hour later. And in its wake, 2,208 people died. And yet the devastation of a flood like that is nothing compared to what Jesus took on in these three hours on the cross the wrath of God stored up for every sin. And at 12 o'clock on that Friday, 2,000 years ago, the dam broke. And the one standing there in front of the dam to take every last ounce of it was the Son of God himself. And he took it all on himself for those three hours. Why? so that we might never face God's wrath, so that we might never face his anger or his judgment for sin. This is the whole point of the cross. This is what we've been saying in the series of times, that Jesus is our substitute. He takes our place. This is why in Romans 3.25, Paul talks about Jesus as the propitiation for our sin. He says, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Someone named John Murray describes that wonderful big word, propitiation, in this way. 
the doctrine of propitiation is precisely this, that God loved the objects of his wrath so much that he gave his own son to the end that he by his blood should make provision for the removal of his wrath. If you are in Christ, here's a reality you and I can rejoice in forever. The chances of you ever facing God's wrath and anger for your sin are absolutely zero. Absolutely zero if you're in Christ. Maybe you've been in a thunderstorm before and you've wondered, I wonder what the chances are of me getting struck by lightning in the midst of this. I've wondered that, so I did some research this past week, and I thought, what are the chances? Turns out the chances that you and I would ever get struck by lightning in our lifetime is 1 in 15,300, which is actually higher than I expected, I have to admit, but still very low. If I did my math right, it's a 0.0065% chance that you would ever get struck by lightning. Apart from Jesus, there is a 100% chance that we will face God's wrath for our sin. It's a surety. It will happen. And I just want to plead, if you're not trusting in Christ and resting in him alone to save you, turn to him and trust him. Because he took it all on himself. And if you are in Christ, then there is an absolutely 0% chance that you will ever face God's judgment and anger for your sin. It's an impossibility because Jesus already took it all on the cross. What was once the most fearful guarantee in our lives becomes the most beautiful impossibility in our lives because of what Jesus did on those three hours on the cross for us. And yet, what's even better than this is that in Christ, God is now 100% for you. He's not just not angry with you. He's delighted in you. He's pleased with you. He is absolutely for you in Christ. Because Jesus swallowed the rushing flood of God's wrath. We swim in the ocean of God's love that is without bottom or shore. There's no end to it. That's what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. And as a result of that in part, we can know that Jesus will carry us through the darkness we face. See, while while in Christ we may be sure we will never face the darkness of God's wrath, we still face the darkness of living in a broken world. For any Christians, there is uh, dark nights of the soul where we wonder, what is God up to? What is he doing? Why is he delaying? What is happening here? And part of the wonder of the cross is that because Jesus descended into the darkest abyss for us, he can carry us through any, any darkness that we face now. I think back to the Thailand cage, 
cave rescue excuse me, that I mentioned at the beginning. The, the divers didn't simply go through the darkness, find the boys, and then give them scuba, deer, scuba gear and say, okay, you're on your own to get out of the cave now. That would have not been good news for those boys if they had to then go through the darkness alone. But the scuba divers dove through the darkness, found them, gave them scuba gear, and then carried them back out through the darkness every step of the way, every swim of the way. This is what Jesus does for us. That in the midst of our own darkness, Jesus doesn't just say, I went through the darkness for you. He says, I am with you and will carry you through the darkness now, no matter what it may be. I mean, in the, in the midst of your darkness in this life, when things are confusing, when you wonder what God's up to, when you wonder what he's doing, when you maybe can't even see him, Jesus is still there holding on to you and will not let you go. He carries you, swims you through the darkness. His darkest hour is our greatest comfort. And his deepest agony or his worst agony is our greatest bliss. This fourth saying on the cross that comes after three hours of darkness is agonizing and heartrending. It's, it's more of a scream than a saying. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Jesus agonizes under the fact that his father has turned his back and in some sense abandoned him in his greatest hour of need. Jesus was forsaken by God. God the Son, forsaken by God the Father on the cross for us and our sins. Now we have to walk carefully here. Because in no way should we say that somehow the Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, stopped to exist or was broken and in no way should we say that Jesus stops or ceased being God in this moment. But we should recognize that Jesus didn't just feel forsaken. In some very real sense, he was forsaken by his Father in this moment as he bore our sins on the cross. I think this is a mystery too deep for us to fully comprehend. It's a pain too deep for us to fully comprehend. But we can at least grasp at it by putting it into categories we understand. Some of you here know what it's like to lose someone you love very deeply. And you know what it's like to experience that pain, maybe even more than the rest of us. That you know what it's like to lose a mother or father who you loved dearly that you know maybe even what it's like to lose a spouse who you loved for years, or you know what it's like to lose a child even. I mean, you know the type of painful loss that losing someone close to you brings. A loss that probably can't be described by words. A loss that you would probably go through any amount of physical pain instead of that. That type of awful, painful loss gives us but a glimpse into what Jesus experienced in this moment on the cross. 
He loved the Father perfectly for all eternity, and that's the one he's forsaken by. The Father knew and loved him perfectly for all eternity, and that's the one who he is forsaken by in this moment on the cross. The pain and agony of this moment is only something that our worst pains can even give us a glimpse into. And here's where I just want to stop for a moment. I want to say to you, if you've experienced the type of painful, searing loss that losing someone close to you brings, no one else may understand what that's like. No one else may grasp what that's like. But God himself does. God himself grasped the deepest type of loss because he went through it himself on the cross and he knows what it's like to face that type of deep pain. He is a steady, sure refuge in the midst of our own losses because he knows what it's like to experience that loss. Jesus felt the worst agony that anyone can ever face and he cries out, in recognition that the Father has forsaken him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the depths that God had to go to in order to rescue us. So that we might be accepted in by God. It's, it's fascinating, it's beautiful we might even say, that at the end of these three hours, as Jesus then cries his last cry, gives up his breath, what happens in that moment? There's a temple curtain that's torn in two from top to bottom. Why? Well, that temple curtain symbolized that there is a distance between us and God. That because of our sin and because of his holiness, there is this massive difference between us. And this temple curtain symbolized you can't have full access to God because of your sin. And in that moment, God slices through that curtain like a knife slicing through butter. What's he saying? He's saying the type of bliss and access to my presence, the type of enjoyment of me that was only available before sin entered the world is now available to anyone through Christ. This is God throwing open his front door and saying, come in. Come on in. Sit down. Talk to me. Have a meal. Tell me about your problems. Tell me what you're facing. Stay as long as you want. You're part of my family. This is an absolutely beautiful moment that's made possible because of the cross and still made possible for us. You've likely seen one of those moments on YouTube or somewhere else where a father who's been deployed in war comes home and surprises his children. And you see as the kids turn around and they see their dad from a distance. And you see as the the dad gets down on his knees and throws his arms open wide. And then the kids run to him and jump into his arms. That's what's happening when God rips the curtain in two. He's bending down on his knees. He's throwing his arms open wide. And he's saying, I'm home. Come to me. I mean, that's what's available to us now and forever because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us.
How different from the type of harsh, angry, distant, aloof God that we picture him to be sometimes. God bridged the distance. He erased the chasm. He chased after us when we were aloof. And now he welcomes us home in Christ. And we can know that he will never forsake us now if our faith is in Christ. We're we're so prone to believe that one day or one point, sometime, God is going to reach his breaking point with us. That because of our sin or our failure or our weakness, someday he's going to reach his breaking point. God reached his breaking point 2,000 years ago at the cross for your sin. It's gone. There is no more breaking point for it. He will never leave or forsake you and I, no matter how many times we may run from him. But we have to confess, I think there are still moments where it feels like we've been forsaken by God. Where it feels like he's turned his back on us where it feels like he's hidden and we don't know what he's doing. I mean, you, you are not abnormal if God feels distant at times in your life. You're not abnormal if you wonder, what is he doing? Why is he letting this happen? Does he not hear my prayers? What is going? You are human. And as long as we live in a world broken by sin, we'll still wrestle with those types of questions. I mean, we we will ask, God, where are you? We will wonder, God, what are you doing? We may even cry with Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in those moments of darkness, the cross is like a nightlight for us. Think about being in a dark room, and when you switch on a nightlight, you can't see everything, but you can see something. You can at least get a picture of something in that room by just a nightlight being turned on. The cross is the light that shines in our darkest moments when we feel most alone and lost and reminds us that God will never leave or forsake us. It's the nightlight we can look to. And though we may not see God clearly, and though we may not see what he's up to clearly, we can see he has a smile on his face because of Christ and what he did for us on the cross. When you feel forsaken by God, run to the cross, use it as a nightlight, and see a God who is smiling at you, though you may not know what he's up to. This is part of what Jesus' fourth cry on the cross can assure us of. And it also then points us to this, that Jesus' perfect obedience is our only hope. Do you know what Jesus is doing when he cries out on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting scripture. He's quoting Psalm 22, 1, which is a psalm we've already alluded to in this series because of how much it prophesies, points to, alludes to the cross and what Jesus experiences. It's a psalm of an innocent sufferer, which describes Jesus perfectly. And by quoting this psalm, 
what Jesus is doing is he's exercising a perfect faith and obedience to the very end. That Jesus is obedient to the very end, even on the cross. I just stop and let's think about this for a moment. Even as the Father turned his back on the Son, Jesus would not stop trusting and obeying in him. In the moment of his greatest agony and pain, Jesus remains perfectly steadfast in obedience and faith. In a moment where every single one of us would have rung the bell and tapped out, Jesus grabs onto God in faith even harder. My God, my God. In a moment where he should have folded and abandoned his faith, Jesus doubles down and goes all in on his faith with this God. In a moment where everything was going against him, Jesus continued to trust the Father and believe that he would deliver him. That's part of what he's doing by quoting Psalm 22.1. He's not just giving vent to his pain and suffering, which he is doing, but he's also expressing his confidence that God will carry him through and deliver him one day. Because there was a practice in this day or a habit in this day that by quoting the first verse of a passage, you were also referring to the whole passage. And so Jesus, by quoting Psalm 22.1, is not just saying, this verse describes me right now. He's saying, this whole psalm describes me right now. A psalm that's full of deep, dark sorrow with words like this. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. But the psalm ends with confidence that God will deliver. We pick up later on. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in all of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. How perfect and amazing is the faith and obedience of Jesus to the end. That even as the Father slays him, he says, I will trust you. That even as the Father forsakes him, he says, I will obey you to the very end. Jesus was obedient and full of faith to the very end when anyone else would have thrown in the towel and given up on God. So that we might or so that his perfect obedience might become ours. Because see, substitution is not a one-way street on the cross. It's a two-way street. Jesus takes our sin and the judgment for our sin. And we take his perfect record of obedience. That's why a famous passage like 2 Corinthians 5.21 can say this, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
one person points to Jesus on the cross and they say this. Oh, what an example the Savior left his people. It is comparatively easy to trust God while the sun is shining. The test comes when all is dark. And while it's absolutely true to speak of Jesus' faithful obedience on the cross as our example, we can't stop there. Because his obedience on the cross is not just our example, it is now ours by virtue of him giving it to us through faith in him. It's as Jesus sinks to the depths that he lifts lifts us up to the heights. To say that Jesus was faithful to the end and obedient to the end is to say that God now views you and I in Christ as faithful and obedient to the end. just, Just stop and think about that for a moment with me. We have to admit there are times, maybe even many times, where rather than running to God, we run away from him. There are times where in the darkness of our suffering, rather than staying strong in faith, we stumble and fall. There are times when though we are God's children and should love and obey him, we fail him completely. And the wonder of the cross is that even in those moments, God still views you in Christ as though you were perfectly obedient and faithful. Because Jesus was in your place and in my place. The cross doesn't give us a blank slate. It gives us a perfect record. And then, because Jesus was obedient to the end and he was ultimately delivered, we can know that Jesus' deliverance will be ours. See, Jesus' life may end in the darkest abyss, but it's from that abyss that three days later, God raises him up. Jesus is the proof that no matter how dark things may get in our lives, in him we are ultimately delivered in the end. Jesus' deliverance as predicted by Psalm 22 is what assures us of the hope we need to face all the troubles in this life. Because Jesus' death shows us that even the worst lament ends in rejoicing. Even the worst lament, the my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, ends in rejoicing. God has delivered me from the horns of the oxen. He is the one we need to look to when we find ourselves crumbling under the darkness of this life and be assured that no matter how dark it may be, he will ultimately deliver us. And that's where we find strength to keep going. There have been several times in my life where I've gone cliff diving into a river of some sort. And usually it's a murky, dark, and likely cold river below. And here's what I've learned along the way. I never jump first. I never jump first. Because I want to see someone else jump. And I want to see them go into that river. And I want to see them then pop back up. And then I can know it's going to be okay. I'll stand there and I'll wait and I'll watch someone jump and then when they pop back up, I'll know, okay, I can jump in and and I'm going to go underwater and I might go deep underwater and it might be cold enough that it takes my breath away. 
but one day I'm going to, or not one day, a couple seconds later, hopefully, I'm going to pop back up because I saw someone else go before me and they popped back up. In the darkness that we face, when we don't know how it's going to end, when we don't know how God's going to work it all out, the hope, the strength we need is to look to Jesus and to see him on the other side of the cross, the deepest, darkest abyss, with his head popping up out of the water, smiling at us. And to know, if God delivered him through that, he'll deliver me as well. That's the type of hope that Jesus' obedience can offer us. I referenced in the beginning the Thailand cave rescue. And then I told you a little bit about how they rescued the boys in the middle. But what I didn't tell you, maybe what you even know, is one of the divers died during the rescue. One of the people that was helping assist in the rescue, getting resources to these boys, on the way back out, lost his air and died under the dark, murky waters of this cave. One died so that the boys might live. That's a picture of the cross and the gospel for us. One died so we can live. One received all of God's wrath so that we can forever receive his love and favor. One was forsaken so that we might never be forsaken. And one obeyed perfectly so that we might be treated as though we obeyed perfectly. See and rejoice in the heights of Christ's love for you because of the depths he was willing to go to get you. Let's pray. Father, we want to look to the cross in awe and wonder. We don't want it to become just something that we know about and believe and are reminded of occasionally. We want to see the heights of your love displayed on that cross as you take our place and die for us. And we want the power of the cross to then affect the rest of our lives, giving us joy, giving us hope, giving us love, and ultimately causing us to worship you, the God who hung on the cross to take our place so that we might then take Jesus' place and be loved by you. Pray this in Jesus' name.